You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer, the editor of Campus. Last week, findings from a Gallup survey of Americans revealed some eye-popping results. It found that only 36% of Americans have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in higher education. That's about 20 percentage points lower than the same survey in 2015. And this time, declining confidence is shared across all constituencies. Democrats, Republicans, people with degrees and without degrees, old Americans, young Americans. For Jonathan Coppell, president at Montclair State University, and my guest on today's episode, it's time for universities to own their part in that loss of trust in American higher education. The big question universities need to ask themselves, according to Dr. Coppell, is... What are we doing to change our modus operandi to make it easier for people to get the dream universities are selling them, i.e. a degree and a better life? In this interview, Dr. Coppell also talks about improving accessibility for minoritized groups, a new merger with Bloomfield College, and how the affirmative action ruling will change the higher education landscape in the U.S. Side note, we recorded this interview before the Supreme Court decision was announced. And I'm happy to say that Montclair State is the newest member of the Campus Plus University Network. These institutions work closely with our team of editors to showcase the best practice expertise of their faculty and staff. You can find out more about Campus Plus at timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. On with the show. President Jonathan Coppell, president of Montclair State University, welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. And you are our inaugural inaugural guest of the video podcast, our first video podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm usually told I have a great face for radio, so maybe you could have done better, but you get what you get. Well, we'll, we'll let our viewers decide. But uh, yeah, that is just a note for anybody who's listening to this that you can find. I'll drop a link uh, in the notes for this episode of where you, they can come in and watch this recording live if they would like to. Um, but just to get started, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, I'm now finishing my second year at Montclair State University, uh, really a thrill to get the opportunity to lead. This is a fantastic, I think underappreciated, uh, large public research university in Northern New Jersey, uh, about 22,000 students, actually the second largest university in our state, uh, and one that really speaks to my passion. It's a university that's all about accessibility and inclusivity. Uh, it's a majority minority institution, an HSI, uh, very large percentage of our students are first gen, um, and uh, and yet we don't take that as a as a sort of reason why we shouldn't be an excellent university too. So we're a rising research power, an R two, uh, and one that's progressing rapidly uh, as an institution that's driving knowledge creation here in our here in our part of the uh, our part of the uh, United States. I came to uh, Montclair after 11 years at Arizona State University, uh, which has a similar orientation, as you know, um, and couldn't, couldn't be more excited um, to apply some of the lessons I learned there and, and do, our own thing here, do our own thing here at Montclair, building on uh, a legacy as a normal school that's been about public service and addressing the needs of the community since its inception. And those are the things that I really, um, I really feel ought to be amplified at our public universities, is our 
our commitment to addressing the needs of the community. So very excited about what we're doing on that front as well and looking forward to sharing with you uh, some of the interesting things that we've got underway. Hmm. Well, since you started with the topic of accessibility to higher education, let's just stick to that. Um, so you mentioned that you are a majority minority institution. You're a, an official Hispanic serving institution. And that's something uh, you said that you want to merge excellence with accessibility. Tell us a little bit about how you plan to do that. Well, so first of all, it starts with rejecting the, I think, popular, popularly held, if unstated idea that those two things don't go together. Um, and there's a whole lot of bias, uh, I think, baked into that unstated assumption. Uh, and so we we are we are not um, we are not shy about sh about showing off the quality of our programs, many of which are best in class. When I think about our school of communications and media, where our students are doing remarkable work, um, winning the award for the best college news production, the college Emmys, uh, if you will. Uh, based on a spectacular uh, report on on New Orleans, and, and and it just shows what our students are capable of. To our our arts and theater and music students, these are the best programs among the best programs in the country. But it extends across the university, whether you're talking about in business or sciences. Uh, we're creating opportunities for our students not just to have access, but to excel and realize their full potential. At the same time not trying to define ourselves by, uh, by how, how we can reject as many people as possible. On the contrary, uh, we wanna try and open our doors wide to people who are capable of doing college level work. Uh, I know that a lot of the listeners to your podcast are immersed in the question of declining enrollments and everybody reads everything about demographic cliffs and how we should all curl up in a ball under our tables. You know, we, we're looking at our third year in a row of the largest enrollment in the history of the university, um, more applications than we've ever had. And I think it's because we, we embrace the important, the important part of our mission, which is it's not just getting people into college, it's seeing them succeed, it's seeing them graduate. We're very proud of the successes that we have, we wanna do better, but in particular, seeing uh, among the best rates of graduation and placement for students of color. Um, and I think that that's something that we as a, as a sector need to address. Uh, if, if we want people to uh, overcome their skepticism with higher education, and, and so we've done a good job of that, uh, but we're seeking to do, to do even more. I want to get on to the topic of the, the skepticism um, that the U.S. public has developed about higher education, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the impending judgment from the Supreme Court on affirmative action. We're waiting, we're waiting a decision on that. It could even happen in the next few hours. I'm kind of keeping an eye on my phone to make sure it doesn't happen during this recording. Um, how, if anything, how would that change any of your approaches to um, admissions at Montclair State? Well, it doesn't have as big an effect on Montclair as it would on some institutions because we haven't we haven't built our model around exclusion, and so the question of you know how people are going to crawl over the the teeming masses trying to enter into our hallowed door, that's not that's not the question for us. Um, our question has always been how do we make how do we make this university experience more accessible? Um, how do we create pathways that allow different students with different levels of preparation and different needs 
uh, to be successful. And it's not a one size fits all model. I don't think there's anything that's coming forth. We don't know, of course, exactly, but that's going to preclude us from paying attention to the needs of different student populations. And so uh, we don't fundamentally believe that this alters our, our purpose or the, or the way we are going about serving the needs of the country. The, reali the reality is this, it's, a, it's an important conversation to have about how, uh, how we allocate the scarce number of slots at highly selective institutions. I get it, I get it. And yet, on a fundamental level, the much bigger question is, how do we create more opportunities for more people, regardless of their race or ethnicity, um, so that it doesn't feel like the stakes of getting into one of these tiny, tiny uh, institutions uh, is so life-altering. That, that's really the, the much bigger picture. And the reality is that opportunities available to people um, do vary based on background. And those backgrounds are uh, heavily influenced by the legacy of racism and discrimination in this country. And so we need to build a system that doesn't um, ration the best opportunities to a small number of people. I appreciate that vision that you've got. And I, I'm interested to hear what your, I guess, projection of what the future might hold just for the landscape of U.S. higher education, if indeed uh, the Supreme Court justices do call an end to affirmative action. I mean, how do you think that will change the landscape of U.S. higher education? Wow, there's so, there's so, many, there's so many sort of variables that are unknown in there um, that it's a little hard for me to judge. I mean, my optimistic, I mean, I'll give you my optimistic sure. vision. My optimistic vision is that people will come to embrace the point of view which I just articulated, which is um, we're doing this, we're doing this backwards, right? Instead of saying, instead of saying, how do you, how do you uh, more equitably distribute these golden tickets as they're perceived to be? Um, and by the way, I think that there's an opportunity not just to look at how race and ethnicity are factoring into the distribution of those tickets, but legacy and wealth and athletic ability. I mean, there's a whole bunch of variables that are also affecting the distribution of those golden tickets that should be, that should be subject to uh, scrutiny. But my hope is that actually the moral of the story is why are we, why are we so limited in the number of tickets? Um, and, and how do we produce more of those tickets? And how do we recognize that there are incredible institutions not just Montclair, not just ASU, incredible institutions all over the country that do provide those opportunities. And, and what that means is at the next level, when it's terms of hiring or internships or graduate schools, that we don't over rely on the status of a small number of institutions to choose people for the second order opportunities. So my, my hope would be that one positive outcome of what is probably going to be, you know, the decision that you articulated is that it broadens our understanding of quality um, in higher education, which is not nearly so concentrated as people believe it is. Um, at your investiture last year, uh, you made a comment about that public trust point uh, in the public trust within uh, of higher education among the U.S. population. And I'm just going to 
read a little bit of what you said. You said trust and education is at an all-time low. We have to own the failure that people are leaving without a degree. Unpack that for us. Yeah, I think that there's a I think there's a reflexive defensiveness when people are critical of higher education and people throw eggs at universities and say you you're not doing anything good for the country. Um and I I take umbrage at that at those things. Um and I think that there's, you know, wild exaggeration on things about woke this and right. But having said all that, there are reasons why people have I think some negative views of of higher education just start with a, a rather, you know, shocking reality which is that the majority of people who have attended college in this country do not have a college degree. Mm. So so the starting premise is that more than 50% of the people have a negative personal experience, right? They started college, they were told they were going to get a degree, they thought things were going to turn out great and here they are without a college degree. Add to that, that a significant number of those people actually have loans to pay for the credits that didn't get them a degree. So, <clears throat> so when we talk about the sort of debt crisis, one of the parts that gets left out of that is that 40% of outstanding debt is not associated with a degree. That's the problem, right? Like most of the people who, who took out debt and paid off the loan, uh, 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 took out debt didn't have a problem pay, repaying loan. The problem is a lot of people took out loans and now they have nothing to show for it. So, so we have to ask the question, well, wait a second, why wouldn't, why wouldn't people be unhappy with us if we told them that they were gonna get a college degree and their life was gonna be better and that's not what happened? And what are we doing? And this is, this is probably the biggest question. What are we doing to alter our modus operandi to make it easier for people to be successful? Right. Most of the most of the, you know, the conversation about college success is how do we better prepare students to navigate college? Right. And I'm sure you've I'm sure you've written about and interviewed many people who are doing interesting pre-college preparatory programs and in college uh, support initiatives. All good, by the way, like I'm not. But maybe instead of teaching people how to overcome the hurdles of college success, maybe we should remove the hurdles. Hmm, like there's a thought. Um, maybe, we should, maybe we should say, what are the hidden prerequisites that, that people who have always known they were going to college, whose parents went to college, um, that they confront when they get here? I was talking to somebody who, who made even a, a funny, it's gonna sound like a superficial comment, but he was talking about a, a group of parents who come to campus and they're asking questions about, about financial aid and, pay, and they say, oh, well, you just have to go to the bursar's office. The what? The bursar? What's a bursar? Of course, everybody grows up knowing what a bursar like what, is. Like what? Oh, that's next to the registrar. Oh, okay, thanks. Right. So it's like, <laughs> Come, like, come on, you got to be a little, you got to be a little bit more, you got to be a little bit more um, introspective about how we do things. And particularly if we are, and I think it's well-intentioned, if we're serious about embracing more first-generation college students, um, more people who, uh, who come from families where English isn't their first language, are we being accommodating to them? So, so we're trying to do more of our orientation activities in Spanish. Not because our students need them in Spanish, 
but they want their families to know what they're doing and they want their families to understand. And even if the families understand some English, they're not going to feel comfortable asking questions. They're not going to feel like it's, it's done for them. So, so we want to try and do everything we can to think about how we're being, how we're being adaptive in recognition of where students at. I was excited to do something at our commencement just now. It occurred to me, uh, as, I, as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that we do the whole ceremony in English. And so we did a, a, a sort of simulcast um, of, of live translation of the whole ceremony in Spanish that people could listen to during the ceremony. And we were able to track that. We had thousands of people listening to the Spanish language live uh, live translation of our commencement ceremony. Yeah. That obviously meant that those folks weren't able to fully be involved in this momentous occasion for their children until we had done that. So, and, and you know, that it's a continual process, right? How do we think about everything that we're doing? And so, so that's how you win trust back, right? You win trust back by constantly asking how you can change and boosting those success rates. And I told you, people are, people are finding us because that's the record that we're establishing. I mean, people I think are becoming more discriminating. They don't want to take out loans that don't pay off. They don't want to go someplace where they won't be successful. I think that's why they're finding Montclair um, and other institutions um, that, are, that are taking this assignment seriously and, and seeing our own role in the discontent that we're confronting. I know a, a few institutions, well, more than a few, have found success in getting back in touch with some of those graduates who dropped out and didn't finish their degree. Is that is that in part of your plan somewhere to reach back Absol- out? Absolutely. Uh, so we're doing that at Montclair. We're doing that at, at Bloomfield College, which we'll talk about. Um, that's a huge. That's a huge part of what we're doing. The other the other related uh, related initiative is to really. Um, focus on a population that I think universities have done a mediocre job of serving, which is transfer. Uh, we have a lot of students who I think get a good start at our community colleges, which is a, a good training ground for people um, to learn how to do college, so to speak. Um, but we don't make it easy enough for them to transfer over, even when we have pathway programs, which most colleges have articulation agreements and pathway programs and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't think we make it easy enough. Um, we want to make it so that a student who starts at a community college is on the pathway to Montclair from the first day they're enrolled. So they're a Montclair student, they're just not at Montclair yet. Um, and, and make them feel like they're preparing to come to Montclair, give them engagement before they're enrolled here. And our transfer enrollments, uh, we're also at a record number this year, which is in some ways even more striking since, as you know, community and college enrollments are struggling, um, so to see that, to see, to see students from that um, trajectory find their way to Montclair and realize they can be successful, that's very, uh, that's very meaningful. Um, and again, it's, it's taking seriously, how are, we, how are we making it hard for people? I can't even imagine how frustrating it is for somebody who works their, works their butt off, uh, earns a whole bunch of credit at a community college, shows up at a four-year institution and is told, yeah, Sorry, uh, only 60% of this is going to count. You thought you had two years. You actually have three years. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine how deflating that would be? And you might just walk away and said, forget it. It's too much. 
So clearly the, the accessibility mission that you have is clearly linked to this call to action for institutions to own it, to own their part in the lack of trust that the population feels for higher education. You've make a very, made a very strong case, which I think is right, about what institutions are not doing necessarily to, to meet students where they are. When we're talking about public trust in higher education, it's often couched in these questions about the democracy of, of or the, the future of American democracy, which is quite a, a grandiose topic, but I think it's, it, it's quite real. And everyone knows there's a presidential election next year. Are you concerned at all about kind of how universities might get caught in the crosshairs of this? I'm concerned on, I'm, I'm concerned on multiple levels. So first of all, it's not might get caught in the crosshairs. Obviously, in, in some states, this, this varies de tremendously depending on what state you're in, right? But in some states, they are in the crosshairs. Um, and they've become, I think, a, uh, a tool to uh, establish bona fides for some people running for office, which is really unfortunate. Um, because when you, when you look at a state like Florida or Texas, uh, they've done incredibly well by investing in higher education. Um, Florida and Texas's economy have flourished in part because they've done a phenomenal job of building not just one, but a set of highly successful research universities, many of which are serving very diverse student populations. Like people should be, people should be beating their chests in these states and saying, we know how to do higher education right. Um, so that that's un, that's unfortunate that it, they've become a kind of pawn and culture war type mm -hmm. politics, and that could that could be destructive to institutions that have been really enormously important for American economic success. I mean, the, the part that I laugh about it is, as you know, uh, we attract uh, thousands upon thousands of international students come to the United States. Uh, to receive a higher education, both college and particularly graduate degrees. And so if I said to you, well, we have this industry, which is the envy of the world. People are sending their kids. We talk about our competition with China. China is sending still thousands of people, India, all over the world. They're sending thousands of young people to this country to get an education. So it's obviously, and by the way, you know this, but maybe not everybody does. Most large public universities, their business model now depends upon these thousands of international students coming. So if I said to you, we have this industry that's a global leader, you would say, well, that, that industry must be pretty good. <laughs> we, we ought to grow that industry. Like we ought, to, we ought to embrace that. So it's a pretty funny thing that we have this, probably one of the most successful sectors from a global competitive point of view, and it's got, it's got arrows pointed at it. It's a little strange. Um, now, I do think, I do think that universities not only because of this, let me be clear about this, not only because they stand to, uh, they stand to be targets in some states, luckily not in New Jersey. Um, we have an obligation beyond that to, to support democracy and to prepare students to be engaged civic actors. Something that I feel very strongly about, I think it's something again where we can, uh, we can be stronger and should have been stronger. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I see a core part of Montclair's mission uh, is to support public service and to create an ethos of public servingness among our students, which doesn't mean every student goes and works for the government or, or a nonprofit, but it does mean that everybody has in their head uh, 
the idea that part of their obligation as an engaged member of society is to serve the public interest. I think that's what we're about. Um, so we're enormously excited that we are a longtime host to the Bonner uh, Foundations program. We just hosted the Summer Leadership Institute. Uh, we, following that, hosted the National Convening of the Next Generation Service Corps, which is a partnership with the Volcker Alliance, something that I was involved in from my ASU days. But the idea is, is to create a four-year public service leadership program at every university to create an engaged citizenry. This is something that actually George Washington talked about. Um, we've never as a country delivered on the idea of a sort of public service West Point or Annapolis. And so that's what this network is about. I'm very excited that we have a, a, a growing network of 15 universities across the country that are supporting public service. We, we, can't, we can't simply watch democracy you know, stumble and say, oh, that's a shame. This is going to be bad for higher ed. We have to say, well, what are we doing? What are we doing to educate our students and not just educate them, but give them tools to be effective citizens and, and teach them uh, how, to, how to be agents for democratic engagement in their communities. I think that's really important. And let me say a word in defense of our young people, who I think are often maligned as being, you know, narcissistic Instagram users. Um, snowflakes. <laughs> snowflakes, exactly. Snowflakes. Yeah. yeah. I actually, in, in, my, in my experience interacting with students, I actually think they're more interested in what their impact on the world will be um, and how they can make a difference than preceding generations. Um, they, 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 this gets often, this gets often um, equated with a lack of, a lack of drive for um, business success or economic success, but I don't think that's quite right. They wanna have a life of meaning mm -hmm. and they're thinking about that. Um, and part of that is, how do I make a difference in the world? And so it's our job to cultivate that. And that's something that's pretty pretty core to what we're trying to do at Montclair State University. Not everybody will be in the Next Generation Service Corps. Not everybody will be a Bonner Fellow or a member of an AmeriCorps program. We host quite a few, but I want public service and thinking about public service and how do you engage as a citizen. I want that to be part of every Montclair student's experience and they emerge with that as being one of the pressing questions that they'll answer throughout the course of their life. It's worth saying that, that you have a public policy background and, and social justice is, is your, your field of expertise and that's what you're doing at ASU. So you're clearly building on the scholarship and, and what you've dedicated your career to. And, that's, and by the way, that's sort of why I do, why, that's why I do what I do. I think universities um, are under, under leveraged tools in society to advance uh, our key interests. So part of that is democracy, but in a much broader way, my view is that universities properly understood, properly designed can be incredible tools to address our most pressing challenges. And as you know, because you've obviously done your homework, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do in Patterson. That's what we're trying to do in Newark and the surrounding communities. It's to use the university uh, as a tool that communities can access to to achieve their aspirations um, and and I, I I just think I just think that uh, I think I think we as a sector could make an enormous difference if we understood ourselves that way
talking about big challenges, I know this isn't the big challenge that you were talking about, but one of the big challenges that uh, the higher education sector is facing right now is is economic contraction. And I know that you are, uh, well, Montclair State is merging with um, Bloomfield College. And this is off the back of the president of Bloomfield College kind of putting out a, a rescue beacon last year, kind of saying, hey, we're in trouble. Can anybody help? And you've responded to that. Tell me a little bit about what, what compelled you to pick up uh, the phone and call President Evans at Bloomfield. So first of all, I want to say a word about what she did, which I thought was incredibly bold, right? Um, as you know, since you talked about contraction, that's a polite way of putting it. Um, <laughs> it's hard to read about higher ed without reading about an institution closing down and many venerable institutions um, that have served communities and students well for hundreds of years are um, closing their doors for the last time. Let's put it that way. And, and so, she could have she could have probably extracted uh, a couple years more for Bloomfield College, um, but what she did was say, you know, we are not going to survive in the long run um, as an independent actor, and I'm interested in a partnership that's going to yes rescue Bloomfield, but more importantly ensure that the mission of the institution continues to be served. And the mission, just for your for your uh, listeners now viewers. Um, uh, Bloomfield is New Jersey's only predominantly black institution. Uh, there are no HBCUs in our state. Um, and there have, there were a few other PBIs, but frankly, they closed. Um, and so it's addressing the needs of a very specific community. Uh, and, and that's the mission that she spoke of like that, that can't go away. Um, and, and so when when I was and I was relatively new, I was probably in maybe six months to my to my term, but but I thought about our mission and everything that I've said so far. Well, that would all be hypocritical claptrap if I let this predominantly black institution down the street, uh, you know, go under, and I just looked on and said, "Oh well, that's a shame." Um, so that just didn't make any sense. The mission was the same as our mission in some ways. Um, and so we, we got to it immediately to try and figure out how we could partner with, uh, we could partner with Bloomfield and, and not just keep it afloat. I want to be clear on that, but to create something more powerful than the status quo. And so what Marquita and I, and we've become uh, good friends and, and close partners in this, what, what we decided was that this was an opportunity not just to ensure that Bloomfield continued, but to design something different, which is a, a liberal arts college focused on a, a set of learners who maybe don't thrive within a typical institution um, that is strengthened by virtue of its uh, inclusion within a large comprehensive public research university. And so... Our goal is not just to create a generic product where Bloomfield is an interchangeable part of Montclair State University with a different street address, but rather to create something new, uh, a college within a university uh, with, a dis with a distinctive student experience and a differentiated pathway um, that is purpose-built for the needs of the learners uh, that it is serving. And we're very excited about that. We're working through the logistical parts, which you can imagine is complex. To take a to take a private institution founded in in the 1860s, the German Seminary of Newark is what it's 
a legal wow. legal name is and to go through the legislation and the accreditation and the yes. federal hoops and the NCAA and oh my. Um, yes. and, and so we're working that through. Um, we're pleased that we've been able to offer positions to 88 or so percent of the faculty and staff. But now we have to, now we, once we get through that, which we hope will be at the end of this month, then we have to get to the design part, uh, which is to build that new experience to increase the you know, retention and graduation rates at Bloomfield and really figure out how we're going to leverage Montclair to make Bloomfield stronger and how we're going to use Bloomfield to make Montclair stronger because we don't see it as a, a one-way street. And as for how this addresses the broader, the broader questions of contraction, I think it's that, it's that last piece that I think is the key. You know, some institutions will close, um, and that's okay. Like that's Schumpeter, that's creative destruction. Not every institution should go on forever. But what worries me um, is that with the loss of diversity of institutions with these closures, you may be losing pathways that are more appropriate for some students than those that will be left. Not every student is gonna succeed in a large public university or a large private university. Um, and not every community will be served by them. So we're going to see smaller rural institutions close up their doors. We're going to see religious institutions close up their doors. We're going to see HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions close up their doors because they don't have economies of scale. They aren't able to invest in technology. They can't offer the services in terms of counseling and psychology and other things that students are looking for. And 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 I my fear is that that will leave certain certain students marginalized from higher education. So not every, not every school needs to survive. Sometimes that's, sometimes the university closing is the right thing, but we have to make sure that there are pathways available for all sorts of learners. And, and I, think, I think that's what we're trying to do with this, with this merger. Um, and I hope that that's the lesson that can, be, um, that can be studied for other institutions that are looking at these types of combinations in the years ahead, because as you know, there will be many. Yeah, so is that is that going to be your recommendation to your colleagues and peers that are leading institutions to perhaps see what they can do to make sure that those pathways to those very specific institutions remain open? I think so. I think that's going to be the key. I think that's going to be the key, uh, the key to our success as a sector in the years ahead. There's lots of different ways to get to that end, right? It could be that you you figure out different ways for students within a large comprehensive university. It could be that you create networks of institutions that leverage the strength of each other. It could be that you you create the combinations uh, that we're seeing. We're not the only one. Um, I think this one, I mean, it's unique in some ways because of the nature of the institutions combining. But but I think that's what that's what we need to be looking at is is uh, is whether or not we can maintain the diversity, even as the number of institutions may be in decline. And, and frankly, this relates obviously to your previous question when we we're talking about affirmative action. And my, my concern is that we make sure that we are maintaining opportunities for everybody across society, which, which quite frankly is a much bigger question than how you do admissions decisions. Just in the, the last few minutes that I have with you, um, I read that you've recently hired a, a superstar academic leading in his field, Dr. K, the doctor of funkology. 
Could you tell us a little bit about that work and how that will fit into your vision for Montclair State? It is, it is true. Dr. K is a visionary musicologist studying, yes, studying funk. For those who are not in on the joke, uh, I moonlight, I moonlight as a DJ on WMSC, uh, one of the finest college radio stations in the country. Uh, and that's not my own, that's not just my opinion. Of course, I'm biased, but it's, uh, it's recognized as, it's recognized as such. And I've had fun, uh, I've had fun, uh, and, and had a good opportunity to embarrass my children by wearing silly outfits and being photographed in them, but, uh, but playing records and, uh, and going on the air with uh, with our students, and uh, it's been a, it's been a good time. And yes, actually, it has forced me to read up on my uh, read up on my funk history. So I am I am a super nerd, and I am an academic. So I couldn't help but but using my silly opportunities to also talk about where funk fits into the American musical idiom. But 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 why why do why do that? It's not just because I'm a goofball. I mean, I am, but it's not just because of that. It's also it's about doing things that that make you human, right? Like our students, our students want to feel connected to the university and the leaders of the university. And my sitting here in a suit and talking, yeah, okay, that's nice. But but we need to find opportunities as presidents to engage with the students so they can hear directly from from me, and just as importantly, so I can hear directly from them. So I've, I've had a lot of fun doing a whole bunch of different things to engage the campus communities. We do on a weekly or biweekly basis. I just have regular walks where students walk around our very beautiful campus and we just chat about what they're doing, what their plans are. They ask me questions. I ask them what's going on. Uh, we've, created a, uh, we've created an ongoing group where there's a, more of an opportunity for sustained dialogue. We call it the cauldron. The reason it's called the cauldron, by the way, here's your fun fact for the day. You know how there are these weird words for groups of animals, like, you know, pride of lions and a murder, of crows. A murder of crows. Everybody knows a murder of crows. Well, the question, Sarah, is what do you call a group of hawks? Because we are the Montclair State University Red Hawks. So the first thing you'll read is a kettle. I looked this up. I was like, well, how about a, and I was like, a kettle? It's not very cool. But the third or fourth word is a cauldron. Okay. And I was like, cauldron's kind of cool. Yeah. So we created the president's cauldron. Nice. Um, and so that's a group of 40 or so students representing all years. I get together with them a few times a semester and we have conversations. And yeah, it's sometimes to complain about this, that, or the other thing. But it's also for me to, for me to have the opportunity to talk to them about how the university works. So... Students are really open-minded and interesting. So when I explain to them the budget or when I, they're like, how come we get parking tickets? And I say, well, here's the deal. Um, or how come, how come this costs much? And I explain how the finances of the university work to them. They're super interested and they get it. And they're like, okay, I understand. Um, they just, they just, they just want to be treated as participants in the university community. And that's really what it, these funny things are about building a community the other thing that we launched last year, I have a cooking show. Um, it's not really a cooking show. It's really an opportunity for me to talk to faculty and staff and students and, and they teach me how to make a dish that makes them think of home. We've got a great international community here. We've got people on campus from 100 plus nations. And so they teach me to, 
to make a dish that's special to them, but we also get a chance to talk about their experience at the university, uh, who they are as people, and I think it gives pe people on campus a better appreciation of the incredible diversity of folks that we're surrounded by every day that we don't know. We smile, we make eye contact, but you don't know people's backstory, um, and uh, boy, what a, what an incredible what an incredible group we have assembled here, and and it's a it's a small way, it's a small way for people to get a sense of that. And what's been perhaps the most um, unexpected bit of information or insight that you've gathered from your students from doing um, this this outreach and interaction with them? Anything that's caught you off guard or surprised you? I don't know if it's caught me off guard, but I will say, um, I think our, our students are fantastic. Every university president is going to say that. Their, their students are fantastic. I got that. But let me just, uh, there's a specific thing that, that, so impresses, that so impresses me. I mean, we, when we have our graduation, we ask, ask our students to get up, you know, which of you are first generation and which of you are, you know, where English is not your first language. And it's, it's quite moving, um, to be honest, you know, when, when you say who's first gen and you know, 70% of the people get up. I mean, wow. But one of the things that was striking, we said, who's been working? Who's been working your way through college? And pretty much everybody got up. <laughs> and the reason why I mentioned that, Sarah, is because what strikes me when I talk to our students, either in these formal ways or even when I just run into people on campus, our students, um, they are really focused on extracting every every shred of value from this experience uh, that they can. Um, and part of it is because I think they're investing so much. They're working, some of them are taking out loans, their parents are using savings. Like it's a, it's a significant investment for them to come to Montclair and they are determined to squeeze from the, to squeeze from the stone every drop of goodness that they can get out of this university. And so look, I would love it if we had, uh, you know, we had a $39 billion endowment and all the goodies that come with that. But I, but I would make the case to you that what we're able to provide, which is, which is pretty amazing, by the way, um, most people that come here are blown away. They're like, I didn't expect to find this at Montclair State University. I would argue that our students extract as much, if not more value from what we're able to provide than students do at universities that might have more um, because they're so laser focused. And it's one of the reasons why they do well in the job market because they're like, they're dedicated and they know how to work hard and they are, and they are, uh, they are not, they are not set off their tracks by bumps. Um, they run into, they run into obstacles, they run into challenges. Life comes at us. It just, it comes at it all. They are just, they are just determined, and that's been the most striking thing as I've gotten to know our students, and they they tell their stories, and a lot of them are tough, like tough, um, but they don't think of it that way. Like that's their life. That's yeah. just that's the that's the hand they were dealt, and they're they're gonna they're gonna play it the best they can, and it's it's pretty impressive. It's pretty that's impressive. That's it makes it easy to work hard for them. It makes it easy to say, how do we make this thing better? How do we go out and get the resources to do even more? Because I know, I know that it's going to be put to good use by our students. President Capel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for letting me be the inaugural video, video guest. I hope that it doesn't uh, result in the cancellation of the video portion for future episodes. But, 
but 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 I but I appreciate it, and I, I I'm always excited to tell people about the great things going on at Montclair State University. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.